This is episode number 281 with Jason Silva. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome everyone to this very special interview and episode with the one and only Jason Silva. We cover a lot today, but for those that don't know who Jason is, this is a guy you want to make sure you follow online and on TV. Jason is a media artist, futurist, philosopher, keynote speaker, and TV personality. He is the creator of Shots of Awe, a short film series of trailers for the mind that serve as philosophical espresso shots exploring innovation, technology, creativity, futurism, and metaphysics of the imagination. He is also the Emmy-nominated host of National Geographic's channel hit TV series Brain Games, which airs in over 100 countries. And we cover a lot today, including the power of flow state and how to get there at any moment of your life, about cognitive ecstasy, how our relationship with new technology affects our mind and becomes part of it, the idea that we are going to be able to live inside our imaginations, the purpose of life and why we're here, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed having Jason on. Make sure to share this with your friends right now, lewishouse.com slash 281, and also go back to the show notes as we add our own little Shots of Awe video over there as well. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the one, the only, Jason Silva. Welcome, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast and video if you're watching live on YouTube. Very excited. Jason Silva in the house. What's up, brother? Hey, thank you for having me, dude. I'm honored to be here after we met on that cruise. I know. It was amazing. Yeah. I was like, uh, we met at Summit Series, but I'd heard about you for a couple years before then with your videos. They really inspired me. And I think- um, I appreciate that. Your philosophical mind is just like so powerful and rich and full of expression. Thanks, bro. And first, I'm like a- I'm a lover of art and yeah. music and dance yeah. and singing and song and songwriting. It's probably because I'm not that good at them, right? It's, but I always appreciate okay. the art. My okay. family is uh, all musically talented, gifted. Okay, My brother's the number one jazz violinist in the world. Wow. So you're wow. you're almost like related in terms that you are like a jazz speaker. Yeah, I like that. Uh, philo- you're like a jazz philosopher. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he is like a musician. So like, sure. you remind me a lot of him and your, your capability to use language. Thanks, man. Uniquely and with uh, improvisation. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I do call, I do describe Shots of Awe as a form of like existential jazz. Exactly. Because the episodes are all completely improvised. They're all stream really? of consciousness. Yeah. People often think, well, do, you, do you write them? Do you script them? I remember this was one of those like surreal moments i got to meet ron howard Uh who was tweeting a lot of my videos and he's a big fan and he was asking me about the creative process we had he's like really you don't script the videos and i was like no i just kind of get in the zone or get in the flow state and we can talk about that later but you know i think that any artist or athlete or musician that sort of pushing pushes the envelope of their genre so to speak is because they've been able to tap into that flow state. They're in the pocket. They're in the zone. And that's always been a mystery of, of the creative process. Like, how does the snowboarder or the jazz musician or the freestyle rapper get to that state mm-hmm. of consciousness, that altered state where they can all of a sudden tap into something larger right. than themselves? And So how do you do it then? When you're getting ready for to shoot, do you have a, fam- a film guy or girl or crew that's with you? And you're like, okay, let me just get in the pocket right now, start the camera, yeah. I'm in it? Or is it yeah. like more like, I'm in the pocket Get the camera like I'm ready. Let's sure. Go. Well, I, I when I initially started doing these videos is because part of what I do in my free time, part of what's interesting to me is to chase experiences that put me in the zone, put uh-huh. me in the flow, because that's when I'm at my most engaged. That's when I'm inspired. That's when I can be actually present um, and silence that kind of anxious inner critic or neurotic inner Woody Allen that's like worried about the future or melancholic for the past. And so being in the zone means, means being in the moment. It's a state of consciousness in which you feel your best and you perform your best, according to Stephen Kotler and yes. Jamie Wheel's definition of flow. 
And I think you know, since I was in, in, in high school, I used to uh, organize these salons every Friday nights, uh, every Friday night with my friends, handpicked people, and do these kind of like uh, inspired by Charles Baudelaire's hashish parties from the wow. 1920s in Paris, <laughs> where all these poets and all these artists would get together and drink wine and smoke hash and just kind of get into that sort of dream space where ideas were flowing and things were being exchanged. And it's almost like... Um, the, t- the term that I really like is heterotopia, which is a, a sort of designed dwelling where a curated audience experiences a, a, a sort of state of being that is f- – or a sort of a, a place that is physical as well as interpsychic. So like you get into the zone together. And, uh, and you know, for people hanging out, to, that's a really fun vibe to create, the sort of salon vibe. And in high school, we used to do that and we used to just really get into this into this altered state together and – the things that would come out, the ideas that were exchanged, felt important, felt mm. uh, special, and even though there's only five or ten of you talking it, about it, but it's just like we—it was the collective buzz that was yeah. achieved, you know. And and, uh, and you know, at the time, I was, what is this? What are we, what are we philosophizing? Like, is that what the, <laughs> would we would describe it? Were you guys just like partying? No, it was like we were like philosophizing. It was like a proper salon. And I've always been obsessed with the video camera, like yeah. since I was a little kid. And I think it was because of this anxiety or acute awareness of the passing of the, pa- the, the passing of the present moment. That no matter how great the, the present moment is, no matter how great our ecstasies are, they're sort of tinged by a bit of sadness because they are transient. Everything yeah. is transient. And so the camera gave me some kind of control, some kind of authorship over the present moment because I was able to say, well, uh, this moment ain't going quietly into that good night. You know, like I'm immortalizing this. I'm capturing this. And so what we would do is we would film the salons, particularly these these epiphanies that were happening. Yeah. I still have all all of it on videos. Yeah, yeah. Video eight millimeter. Wow. And and so, yeah, we'd get in the zone and whenever some deep insight was exchanged, we'd film it. And uh, that kind of carried through into my, you know, I studied film and philosophy in college and then when I graduated, I got to work for Al Gore's TV network, Current TV, and I spent uh, many years working on as a presenter for them. And that was all short form, digital content, do-it-yourself media. And right. I just kind of got comfortable with these tools that allowed one to kind of capture life as it's lived. So it empowered people to tell their own stories in their own voice and from their own point of view. And and when I was kind of towards the end of Current, I still had, and during the weekends, I was kind of going back to that vibe of high school where I was just like, you know, I'd go for a hike with a friend. I'd get into the profound philosophical discussion. Um, and then I'd turn around and like want to film it. And then that evolved into this desire. Well, I was like, okay, well, what I'm really interested in mm-hmm. is this moment of inspiration or this moment of insight or this moment in which the dots connect, uh, is, is a, is an intense high. I mean, yes. it's, there's a moment of elation where, when things become clear, so to speak, like mm-hmm. Carl Sagan. It's like, a, you, it's like a philosophical orgasm. Yeah. Mindgasm. Mind. <laughs> yeah. So I, I found a definition for that. A mindgasm is an exhilarating neurostorm of intense intellectual pleasure. Wow. <laughs> Which I love that definition. Um, and I was once told that I was addicted to cognitive ecstasy. Wow. So cognitive ecstasy literally just means that you enjoy the, the sort of cognitive high of like connecting the dots and understanding mm-hmm. something. Carl Sagan, one of my heroes, used to say, understanding is a kind of ecstasy. So – I, I'm just somebody that like is addicted to the feeling that he's discovering a new insight. Yeah, it just that feels good. It's like, oh, I understand, you know. And uh, and so because I was filming a lot of these hangouts with my friends and these philosophical you know things, I, I then decided I was like, I want to film them and then I want to take them and I want to visualize everything that's going on in my head. Mm. So how do I do that? You know, so so I I if I have like a stream of consciousness three minute rant and I sort of incorporate you know that with visual imagery that either is literally or symbolically or metaphorically connected to what I'm saying, then people get to see my thoughts. Right. So then it's like they're hearing me and they're seeing it, and it creates a kind of synesthetic effect. And then you add some music to kind of cue the kind of emotions that I'm interested in conveying mm-hmm. in that moment. And the idea was I, that I could give people a kind of a like a digital trip, like a yes. digital tour of my head. And, and that's <laughs> – Ultimately, all art is that, right? Like when somebody does a painting, when they sing a song, when they write a poem, you're not going for empirical reality. You're going for subjective reality. Yeah. You're going for an experience from the inside to to your, you know, to share my intersubjective world with you, right? Right, right. And uh, and so that's where the inspiration came from. And and, and yeah, I, I only film them when I'm out of my head, when I'm in the zone, when I'm in a flow. And then we take them and we edit them, and, and I started doing those, and they kind of blew up. And then I partnered with uh, some a production company, and now we do them regularly. It's amazing. How often do they come out now? Once a week. 
Once a week. Yeah. So you got to get in the zone at least once a week. Or you can, No, you can because what happens them. is we get together, we go to a place like Big Sur. I find that, that getting it, – it, it, it helps if, if the analogy of what you're doing physically will tends to correspond with what you're doing mentally. So if I want to get out of my head, i got to physically get out of my you're world. Not, you're not in a studio. No. You're no. out in nature. And that's what I see in all your Very videos. Very much so. I think the first one I saw, you were like sitting on a log in the middle of the woods or something. Yeah. yeah. I was like, it actually wasn't that well produced, like no. film quality-wise. You're like, no. you had like a... Like the first a, couple I shot like with a, like a handheld camera. Yeah. yeah, and you had like a man bag or something. Yeah. I was like, who is this guy? But yeah. it was like... But it's actually amazing, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I like to go to Big Sur or like Sea Ranch, California, like yeah. up and down the coast of San Francisco. You can find these like desolate, majestic places that serve the purpose of making you contemplative. Yes. I- I'm seeking introspective contemplation. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, contemplative <laughs> introspection. And uh, and what that does is that it makes me think of things I don't normally think of, and then it makes me want to articulate those things that have and connect the dots yeah yeah and then and then it's just about having the camera and and capturing Mm. that and yeah it's amazing it's yeah it's really fun what did you think you were going to be doing growing up like now you're 33 is that Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. what did you imagine as a teenager i wanted to be a director yeah and i wanted to be a director because the aesthetic and intellectual power of cinema um from a very young age, to me, seemed like the most powerful medium in the world. Like, there was nothing that existed that was better at conveying the the human experience, particularly the interior human experience, from the point of view of a character, from the point of view of a person, mm-hmm. the intersubjective life world of the other, as cinema. Yeah. It was just simply the greatest communication technology that had ever been made. You know, you could talk, you could sing, you could paint. Cinema combined all of these, and it put you inside yeah. of someone else's world. And so as an engine of empathy, as a way of stepping outside yourself, as a way of witnessing someone else's life, I just, I was always moved by cinema. And so I mm-hmm. wanted that power. As a director... You know, because I felt like the movie, yes, it's the characters, the actors, it's the actresses, but it's really the writer-director's vision story. Yeah, yeah. And he uses everybody else as a conduit to tell that. And so I, I identified with the director's role. Mm. But then at the same time, there is the, the sort of face on camera is the one that, as an audience member, you relate to, even though, you know, it's the director's vision told through the face of the person on screen. So I think with digital technology, it there it kind of blurs those things together because mm. particularly if you're a vlogger, you're a podcaster, you're kind of like directing the show, but you're also the guy that's speaking. You're also right. the voice and the face. And uh, and if that's kind of what happened with me in digital video. It was like, yeah. well, I want to be like a filmmaker, like a digital filmmaker, but at the same time, I kind of want to be the voice that you that is. And so that I think emerged because these tools allow for it. Yeah, it's and a perfect so time in it, in, yeah, in the internet right now. Yeah, right? so I wanted to be a director and I wanted to be a philosopher. So I studied I studied film and philosophy, which is exactly what I was doing in those salons in high school. And and I remember in film school, I was like, well, I, I just want to like, I just want to like philosophize and like make these like art. I would see Richard Linklater movies like Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before uh-huh. Midnight, Waking Life. You've probably seen Waking Life. Sure. Um, and I was like, wow, these are films about philosophy. These are like yeah. naturalistic, you know, films where characters are talking about life. It seems very unscripted. It seems very real. And there doesn't have to be a bunch of explosions for this yeah. to be considered cinema. It's just interesting <laughs> people talking. Sure, sure. And I was like, well, what's the digital equivalent of that? Like, what's 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 a film like Waking Life? What's a film like Before Sunrise? Um, you know, I showed you that clip of my recent love yes, affair. Yes. I was like, I kind of want naturalistic stream of consciousness exchanges between two people. And I want to turn that into an aesthetic work that can be contemplated mm. and hung on a wall. And that's always kind of what I wanted to do, even if I wasn't able to articulate it. But it, we, it, it strangely, has, I've been able to kind of manifest it. And that's like kind of what I do now. You know, it's like, right. yeah, well, technically, yeah, he's a TV presenter on Brain Games. <laughs> yeah, sure. And that's great. But really, I think what I am is like a kind of, uh, I don't know, an explorer of consciousness, a seeker and a digital mm-hmm. filmmaker who uses that medium to articulate the meanderings of his inner world. I love you know? it. I love it. <laughs> that's... <laughs> Who, who would you say is the most uh, influential person in your life growing up, and what was the biggest lesson they taught you that you still think about today? I mean, there there have been a bunch, but I was I, I am and I've always been extremely close to my mother. Yeah. Um, my parents divorced, and I'm really close with my dad too. But my dad is more like uh, the things I learned from my dad were a little bit more about there, there's a kind of. Uh, 
you know, health and 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 elegance and some sort of sophistication, debonair quality that he has. That's just <laughs> kind of about like taking care of yourself and sure, sure. and and it, not to say superficial, but my dad's like a kind of a Latin James Bond. He likes to <laughs> fly his own Cessna plane and race boats and motorcycles, and he's so suave. And there's that. But then my mother is like this brilliant artist, poet, sculptor, yeah. teacher. She's taught for 35 years wow. internationally. She's published like 10 poetry books. She directs theater and has directed theater for many years in Venezuela and, and around the world. And, you know, I grew up in the environment where the arts were celebrated, where creative expression and expressive discharge was celebrated. And she always used to say, just do what you love, do what you love, do what you love. The only yeah. cardinal rule is you have to be kind. So mm. it was like that was like, you know, in terms of like the rules, like you just have to you can't be unkind. You can't mistreat anybody ever. But aside from that kind of like uh, mm. you know, abiding by that, you know, everything else is like go for it. Like mm -hmm. express yourself, dance like no one's watching. Watching, you know, right, like right. just go Sing for in the rain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I also think the pain of the divorce between her and my dad, mm. she channeled into art that was around me growing up. You know, mm. like the sculptures were all about her pain. The poetry books were all about the exquisite, aching darkness that she went through and articulated so brilliantly and i read as a 13 14 year old and i was like you know my mom i'm connected through like an umbilical cord to this person so just yeah. to read her pain was to feel her pain mm. that's a lot for a little kid to think about you know and i think it, it caused a lot of uh, existential anxiety mm -hmm. but i think that that anxiety at the same time has been a fuel for my work and my art you know right, of course yeah what do you think it means to be human today mm. Well, it's uh, I did a video recently called Redefined Billionaire, which was inspired by some of the ideas put out there by Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis from the uh -huh. XPRIZE Foundation, which is that the new definition of billionaire today on the back of these exponentially emerging technologies is uh, not somebody who has a billion dollars, but somebody who positively affects a billion people. That's the new definition of billionaire, like empowered by smartphones, empowered by the fact that, you know, a young kid in Africa with a smartphone has better communications technology than the U.S. president had 25 years ago. Right. How does that allow us to change the world when the supercomputers of yesterday now fit in your pocket? How does that allow us to impact the world in a positive way? A kid in a garage, a kid with passion has the communication, has the power, has the technology that only governments and corporations used to have a few decades ago. So to be human today is to crisscross the sky to be human today is to communicate instantaneously across the world to turn our ideas electrify them at the speed of thought get them out there reach other people i mean we are miraculous beings you know there's these uh cognitive philosophers that i love called david chalmers and andy clark who wrote a, a thesis called the extended mind thesis mm -hmm. where they basically put on the notion that you know i phone therefore i am that our tools <laughs> that these technologies are actually cognitive appendages like like if you drew the vitruvian man today you <laughs> right, know right. and like you're pointing to all of his physiological features of like the ideal <laughs> human form that he'd have an iphone in his hand and you'd point to it and identify it the same way you point to the neocortex wow. or you point to like his limbs like the this is, even though it's outside of our skin tissue, it's very much part of like the mental apparatus of the human being. So we are extended minds. Our, mm. our intellect, our cognition is distributed between <clears throat> biological and non-biological props and scaffolding. Right. So it's like, that's I think what to be human today is that we are extended. And it almost never leaves our body, except never. when we sleep. Yeah. And it's maybe an arm's length away. A thousand percent. Yeah, and, and some people like get freaked out. They're like, oh, we're so dependent on our phones. But like, dude, we've always been symbiotically codependent on our tools. Like when we started, yeah. we discovered fire and started cooking food and using stone tools, our jaws shrank over a couple generations. Like wow. our physiology has always been transformed and affected by the tools we create. Marshall McLuhan, the media theorist in the 70s, the visionary, he used to say we build the tools and the tools build us. Wow. Feedback loops. Remember yes. we were talking before about the feedback loops? Everything we design designs us in return. And Stephen Johnson, our thoughts shape our spaces. Our spaces return the favor. You know, like, that's us. And so that is, that's what it means to be human today. These cameras are extensions of our mindedness and our agency and our will. Like our thoughts, you know, electrochemical activity within our brain goes way beyond the brain. You know, it's going into other brains. It's right. changing other people's neurochemistry today. So we're becoming a super organism or we've always have been, but it's like now it's sort of blooming. Mm. Uh, I'm just in the jazz pocket. Awesome. Right now, we are in the pocket. I love this. <laughs> uh, 
One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So what do you think is the master plan and why do you think we're all here? Have you ever heard of uh, Teilhard de Chardin? No. So, so he was a, a Jesuit priest that was uh, kind of banned from the church for some of his ideas about the directionality of evolution. <laughs> so he was he believed in evolution, which kind of is not necessarily kosher in, in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but his whole thing was that evolution has a directionality, that it moves towards greater complexity and organization. So single-celled organisms became multicellular organisms, became you know animals, became primates that got caught right. in self-awareness. Then those primates started inventing biotechnology and tools and technology that started modifying themselves. And so there's this move towards more sublime complexity and intelligence and, and creativity that comes from that, right? And so he says that we're kind of moving towards this omega point, this like moment where we basically are mm. going to engender our own godhood. So it's wow. not so much we're going to be saved by God, but it's like we're going to become gods, which is <laughs> interesting, very poetic and very beautiful. And uh, wow. and and sort of today, Ray Kurzweil, who's a prominent futurist, uh, he's now the head of engineering at Google um, because Larry Page and Sergey think that he's the man, which wow. which he is. Kurzweil has popularized the term singularity. The technological singularity is a metaphor borrowed from physics. Singularity is what happens when you go through a black hole. The laws mm-hmm. of physics, as we know them, collapse. And so he's taken that metaphor and used it to describe the plan, the grand plan for humanity, the directionality that we're going at. And basically what he's saying is that emerging transformative technologies in IT, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, you know, like mastering our genetic engineering, synthetic biology, et cetera, and nanotechnology, which is patterning the atoms of the physical world so that we can self-make anything that self-assembles. Like we can print an information file, software that writes its own hardware. We can like design a building on the computer and have it self-assemble. Like crazy. That we're moving into a world where we're going to basically live inside of our imaginations. Like we're going to be able to like manifest realities at the speed of thought. The Matrix. The Matrix, yeah. yeah. And so he says that the singularity is the moment humans transcend biology. And so I think, yeah, I think the grand plan is that we, as a species, as a a sort of self-aware symbolic species, our enemy is mortality. Our enemy is entropy, the second law of thermodynamics that wants to break everything down. But then life is anti-entropic. You know, Buckminster Fuller, another futurist, used to say life is an anti-entropic phenomenon because unlike entropy, which wants to destroy and break everything down to its simpler elements, life wants to incorporate elements and become more complex, more sublime, more sophisticated. And the, you know, one of my favorite uh, writers, this guy, Alan Harrington, said, we must never forget that we are cosmic revolutionaries, not stooges conscripted to advance a natural order that kills everyone. Any philosophy that accepts death must itself be considered dead, its questions meaningless, its consolations worn out. In other words, stop trying, stop praying and start engineering. Mm. Like, yeah, yeah. so the, I think that's the grand plan for us, basically, to make ourselves supermen. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think it's harder? For- We've already done it, bro. I yeah. mean, look at airplanes. Look at it's smartphones. Crazy. Look at video conferencing on you know, FaceTime. It's insane. If you yeah. think 100 years ago. Totally. 1920, if someone had said, uh, you know, we're gonna, there's going to be big objects flying across the world that Dude. can go from one place to another in a few hours, people yeah. would have hung you. Let me, let me read you something. Yes. Very, very go nice. So it. I love the philosopher... <laughs> Um, Alan de Botton and uh, on travel so he says uh, something that's so amazing he talks about the fact that we take these marvelous miracles for granted you know if we were to show yes. a, a sort of 747 to somebody 200 years ago they would think we were gods right and they would be right they would be bowing literally to us saying yeah. whatever you want yes yes exactly and so <laughs> He talks about, you know, the, the sort of the miracle when we're in flight 
you know, we're, we're on an airplane and most people close their freaking windows. <laughs> and so this is what he writes. There is not much talk about the clouds visible up here. No one thinks it remarkable that somewhere above an ocean, we flew past a vast white candy floss island, which would have made a perfect seat for an angel or even God himself in a painting by Piero della Francesca. In the cabin of the airplane, no one stands up to announce with requisite emphasis that out of the window, we are flying over a cloud, a matter that would have detained Leonardo and Poussin, Claude and Constable. And I was like... He's absolutely right. We take it for granted. We just Dude, like, it becomes second nature. Can of you imagine Leonardo da Vinci in a seven forty seven <laughs> looking at a cloud during a sunset at thirty five thousand feet? Like we already are in, are moving in that direction of like making ourselves you know something far beyond what we used to be. And I just think that we need to extrapolate from that mm. and not and not 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 not. not, not, not Sort of not hide from from our potential, but like move towards the light, bro. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like you know, as kids, our first time on an airplane is unbelievable. Of course, like God, you can't stop like looking out the Mm -hmm. window, like Mm -hmm. telling your mom and dad, like, Mm -hmm. can you believe what we're doing? Mm -hmm. And I guess the question I'm I'm leaning towards is, do you feel like it's harder to experience awe as adults than as it is as a children? (sighs) Yeah, and how do we? allow ourselves to be in that childlike state of awe yeah. more, more often so that we can fully experience gratitude and appreciation. Totally, bro. And put us more in the zone. Yeah. Yeah. Because really, if we're not in awe, we're probably yeah. not in the zone. Of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it was Henry Miller. Even a blade of grass, if given proper attention, becomes a magnificent thing in itself. Um, Charles Darwin also talks about the importance of the knobs and levers of mediating our attention. It's really all about mm-hmm. attention. It's all about attention. He says, attention, if sudden and close, graduates into surprise, mm. and this into astonishment, and this into stupefied amazement, right? So how do we get there? How do we do that? How do we transcend what Michael Pollan calls the been there's and done that's of the adult mind with our nodding resignations into nothingness, you know, <laughs> which is true. The, the sort of the, the banality of the everyday, right? Um and I think that the way we do that is to overwhelm ourselves. I think that we – a lot of our, our communication technologies are all about mediating attention. I mean an IMAX screen, its sheer size and scope and soundscape is meant to arrest the senses and yes. envelop you completely. I think that the, the, the hunger for more and more intense immersive technologies, whether they be virtual realities or IMAX cinemas – to push the envelopes of experience is for that very reason, to arrest the body-mind and force us to overcome the been-theres and done-thats of the adult wow. mind and see something brand new. Because but, when you see something new, you become the child again. But then doesn't the IMAX theater become old and boring and been there, done that? And Hedonic adaptation. To- yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. <clears throat> I mean, think about it. Why does the honeymoon phase always end with every relationship? And and I may sound a little bit controversial in, in my advocacy for this, but uh, I really love the philosopher David Pierce, who wrote a treatise online called The Hedonistic Imperative. Mm. And he says that we should use advances in biotechnology and nanotechnology to basically engineer super drugs that allow us to basically author a kind of chemical neurochemical nirvana for ourselves Mm. so the idea is to is to figure out what makes something like mdma so effective you know why is mdma get ecstasy given now to people with ptsd Mm -hmm. or people with ocd or anxiety disorder and it seems to dissipate it it seems to have the impact of 10 years of psychotherapy in one afternoon because we are made of neurochemistry and if we can understand that neurochemistry if we can if we can understand the sort of the psychology the technology and the psychopharmacology of ecstatic States, then why not design better living through chemistry? Why not become paradise engineers? I mean, there is a reason why there is a renaissance in sort of the sort of psychotherapeutic use of psychedelic substances. You know, in the 1960s, these things practically changed the world. Steve Jobs says that taking LSD was the greatest experience of his life. Granted, taking LSD in anything less than a perfect set and setting could be a recipe for psychological despair as well. These are delicate tools, but these are tools that when used responsibly can give us glimpses of what lies beyond our current limitations, our current Darwinian survival mechanism, amygdala, survive fight or flight mode, and go to that place of the artist, the place of grace, the place of transformation, the place of the numinous. 
And so, yeah, dude, I, I mean, I actually think that it is going to be through intervention, you know, really? whether it's intervention that is, you know, mindfulness, meditation or yoga or whether it's through like reverse engineering MDMA, eliminating any of its adverse effects and making MDMA two, three, four, five point oh. And that's, wow. you know, that's the future, man. It's, it's, it's actually, you know, the, the famous book Brave New World is a dystopia about this idea sure. about a future where we have a perfect perfect designer drugs that make everybody happy but no one's allowed to fall in love and and I, and I totally respect the, the the author's desire to make a sort of dystopian you know warning um, tale but I actually think that a lot of what that book talks about is something that doesn't have to be dystopic at all mm-hmm. I, I do believe that there are realms of the mind yet to be explored that the new space is inner space that subjectivity that consciousness is uh, is unexplored territory and that the knobs and levers approach as Stephen mm. Kotler and Jamie Wheel talks about is is where the future lies right that we can be ontological DJs reality DJs consciousness DJs and that just like a DJ board or a you know in a recording studio has a thousand knobs and levers right. that adjust exactly the kind of sounds you're looking for why not turn consciousness itself into a project like that I mean we're getting heavy but why not yeah of course why not like I think I think it would be nice if I got to experience mm. the cognitive thrills that that Christopher Nolan feels when he writes a film or directs wow. a film like Inception. It would be nice if, if a filmmaker like Danny Boyle was able to communicate the aesthetic impact of his music neurologically into my brain. You know, mm. like, I mean, I just, I, there's so much art out there and there's so many nuances and sensations that art can evoke, but I think they're just, they're like glimmers of where we can go and what we can feel. Right. It's crazy. Do you wish yeah. you were born like in a couple hundred years so you could experience this whole new world? I mean, I'm I'm banking on the hope that we will be able to quadruple the human lifespan within my lifespan. I mean, there's a lot of well, Peter excited- Thiel's working on that and other people. Peter right? Thiel, Larry yeah. Page, yeah. California Life Extension Company, Calico, right, it's a right. new software to hack life. You know, the Google in the end of death was the time cover story. Look, I, I, yeah, man. I mean, yes, we need more time, dude. We can learn the songs that orchestrate the universe. The universe is big. You know, the universe is mm-hmm. infinite. So why can't we be? Yeah, it's amazing. In one of your recent videos, I think it was the Brain Games actually yeah. trailer, which was b- beautiful, by the way. Um, mm. You say that we're always looking for better answers, but what we should be doing is asking better questions. Yeah. So what are the questions you're asking lately? Oh, and man. what are the better questions we should be asking? Whew. That was a question. Why did that girl stop texting me? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Oh, dude, yeah. I think that, um, <laughs> you know, I fell in love over five days this holiday period. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't throw the word love out there too loosely, but I, 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 I purposefully hypnotized myself. I, yes. I, I, I went on a few dates with somebody. I allowed the infatuation to take hold and then i anchored it with an aesthetic work by putting her inside one of my videos set to music so that i could author future (laughs) memories whenever i looked at the video of me and her so yeah i fell in love with her last couple days and then and then when i when i left miami she kind of she kind of pulled back a little bit and said she needed to sober up from me um, from the love and figure out how she yeah. feels. And I don't know what that means. I texted a couple of girlfriends of mine to ask them, what does that mean? She's like, she may be having an intimacy hangover. You may have just gone in too deep, too fast, too intense, and then you left. And she, to process that, to be to either experience such neediness and such vulnerability without you there, uh-huh. she has two choices. Either go with that neediness and be that needy or close up and say, I need to recover my my identity, sort of self-sustaining yeah. identity. Yeah. And so... She experienced something she'd never experienced before. A guy she'll never experience from again yeah i don't know yeah and so uh, (laughs) so a question i've been asking myself is like oh man why how could she like just go cold turkey like that that's one question another question i ask myself is why haven't we cured cancer yet you know what i mean like we're like engineering printing organs in the lab and this and that and like come on like fix this already let's create like gene therapies that can like turn off the software in a a tumor and kill it I, I want the advances in healthcare, the revolutions that are coming with like biotech to get yeah. here really, really, really fast. Like I want to see, you know, I, I, I remember once I kind of bumped my head a little bit and, uh, I told you about this. I got an anxiety attack because I was like, oh, what if I have internal bleeding or something? It wasn't even a bad bump in the head, but I just kept thinking, 
what if? And I remember I went to the emergency room just in case, and I was like, give yeah. me a CAT scan. I just I just want to make sure I'm fine. And the emergency room was so impersonal and so inhuman and so un uncompassionate, you know, and I just found the experience to be like revolting and disgusting. And I just can't believe that's what, that's what medicine is. And it's just like disgusting. And so I just, I just, I feel like we need a, a sort of change in values and we need to start like having these sort of apps of that are, you know, the software apps to fix healthcare. And we need to, we need to have the Airbnbs and the Ubers and the iOSs for biotechnology and, and take the power back from these institutions mm. that just, ugh. Right, right. What would you say if you could come up with three questions that everyone everyone should ask themselves mm-hmm. to have a richer, fuller, more expressive, health, yeah. healthy life? What would those three questions, or maybe yeah. a couple questions, be there? Yeah. Um, you know that great line that says, ask not what the world needs, ask instead what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. So yeah. then the question, of course, is what makes you come alive? I and like what do I mean by that? Well, what gives you the goosebumps? What gives you the chills? What makes you well up? Mm. It's a great line by Alain de Botton, the UK philosopher, where he says, we don't cry because something is sad. We cry because something is more beautiful than we expected it to be. So those moments, make note of those moments. When do you find yourself witnessing something that's more beautiful than you expected it to be? What, what induces that? What are the precursors to that? Right? Because I'm all about control. How can we pre-configure more of those experiences? Pre-configure more of those moments of grace. Reverse mm. engineer author more of those moments for ourselves instead of allowing those moments to be haphazard coincidental moments that just happen oh it just happens no we can make more of that we can make more inspiration we can make more flow more grace more transformation and that's what i want man i want to just constantly epiphanize myself and i think people (laughs) should ask themselves how can i epiphanize myself more yeah i like that okay uh what frustrates you about people in life I think something that frustrates me is when um, when people just settle for an unexamined life, mm. right? So the unexamined life is not worth living. I think a lot of people are afraid of the questions and afraid of the answers, and so they prefer to watch mindless, narcotic, stupefying television. Well, yeah, like it's just an easy job where we don't have to think too much and an easy uh, kind of a boring TV series that you watch every night so it doesn't right. make you think too much and just, uh, I guess, killing time. I find that to be the most depressing thing ever. Killing time. I just kill, let me just kill some time. <sighs> hate it okay yeah what's the most important skill you think we should all be learning there's one skill we could all be learning more of learn how to say what we feel and feel what we say you know i don't know learn to be more honest with ourselves and with others learn to be more vulnerable learn to be much more vulnerable i mean one of the things that we had so much fun in when we were at the summit at sea boat is that they created a kind of heterotopia intersubjective inner psychic space that's similar to kind of what Burning Man seems to be able to achieve, mm-hmm. where everybody is present with everybody else. Everybody addresses everybody else with an openness and a transparency and a vulnerability that creates self-reinforcing positive feedback loops. You catch the buzz, right? Yes. You design the space, you bring the people, and before you know it, everybody infects everybody else in a self-reinforcing loop. And controlling those fe- feedback loops becomes a kind of ontological design, a design of beingness, designing a new way of beingness. And that is all about the feedback loops. It's all about the creative and linguistic choices, right? I design, therefore I become. You become what you behold. And if we were able to curate our spaces, to curate the people we hang out with, to curate the activities we expose ourselves to, we can actually author future versions of ourselves into existence. We can turn ourselves into a dynamic work of art that we're constantly refining. That's such an amazing mm. thing to treat ourselves as an art project. Yes. Like you are an art project. I am an art project. And we, when we were on that boat, I mean, I just, oh my God, I just, I remember going to that like crazy tea room and everybody was yes. like lying down and cuddling <laughs> with everybody else. And it's I was like, what is happening here? It's all music love. Music and yeah. All the chanting love. and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, would you rather be, this is just a question. It's kind of maybe silly, but mm. I thought it'd be interesting to hear your response. Would you rather be the richest person in the world and have no imagination? Okay. Or all the imagination in the world, but no one to share it with? Ooh, man. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess 
I guess all the imagination in the world but no one to share it with is probably of those two the one I would choose because I would be able to create really realistic imaginary friends <laughs> if I had all the imagination in the world. I think that's the only way that I can come up with a happy medium between those two things <laughs> right, right, because right. to not be able to share with someone is the recipe for insanity. Mm. Um, you know, we are, we are social beings. I read this article recently called The Art of Peopling. Peopling. So they're not people, peopling. And he basically says that the way that we come into existence is through the exchanges with others. I come to see myself. I, I am not, I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Interesting. Which is really trippy, but when you think about yes. it, it's like the other is the required to come to, to be. Yes. Yeah, so I am not who I think I am. You're who I, I think you are. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think Interesting. I am. Yes, of course. The perception of my perception. Yes, is what I am. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's so you cool. are, in a sense, who you think you are. You are you who you think others think you are. Yeah. If you, yeah. If you so, say, well, this is what their perception is of me. Right, but how do I know that I'm correctly reading the perception? I mean, I think you have a perception of me, but there's two there's two lines of modeling there. There's there's what I'm putting out, there's what you're taking in, and the feedback mm-hmm. I'm getting from you based on what you're taking in from me, and then there's me making an assessment of what your impression is of me and me trying to be that impression. <laughs> it gets crazy, yes. but it's all about the loops. Yes, yes, yes. So, But you could trick your mind to yeah. saying, well... This is who they think I think I am. <laughs> you, right? could, you could. You could. Well, perception. Yes. Well, reality is coupled to perception. Exactly. Reality is it only, is all perception. It's only perception. It. Yeah. It's only perception. Culture is a reality tunnel. Culture is an iOS. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what's the most challenging moment of your life you've had, and, and what did you create out of that experience? I had a terrible panic attack. Um a panic attack is probably the most horrible thing that I've experienced. I mean, I've been lucky enough. I've never really lost uh, a loved one mm-hmm. to like death or anything. My grandfather died, but um, that was, I mean, that was, that was horrible. Well, yeah. it was semi natural. He was a cigarette smoker oh, for yeah. many years. So it was kind of self created. That was tragic. But other than that, um, yeah, I remember, uh, I, I guess it was like one of those days where I just wasn't feeling well. I was fatigued, traveling a lot. Went to a restaurant, ate too fast, drank uh-huh. a beer, got really bad gas, caused a stomach ache. Stomach ache wasn't going away. I guess I hyperventilated and I had a brief faint spell. In the restaurant? Like standing outside the restaurant by the car with my brother and he kind of grabbed me and it was only for like two seconds, but like I never experienced that before. Like the actual like, you know. Losing your yeah. consciousness. Yeah, for like a second and, and kind of two seconds later when I was there, did I just fall to the floor? You know, it gave me the worst panic attack of my life because I thought I was dying. Like, I wow. thought that the fainting was caused because I was dying. Like, I thought in that moment, hard, that, whatever. And uh, it was the scariest thing in my life. And it left a little bit of PTSD. Like, because even after I went to the hospital, I said, everything's fine. You're fine. Your vitals are perfect. No, 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 no. The anxiety of it happening yeah, again. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the most happen? horrible experience in my life. And it lasted wow. for days. Like, it le- I, I was I was anxious about having another panic attack for, for days. And... Uh, yeah, and that was the scariest thing I've ever experienced. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So what did you what did, what you did I learn? From? Yeah. Ah, the power of breath. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes states of mind you can get into these negative loops um and it's amazing how by changing your physiology you can then change your emotions. Like if the loop is so self-reinforcing and negative and you can't get out of it intellectually, you can change your physiology, Mm. which in turn will change your state of mind. Of course. So I, it was one of the few times that I learned to take a couple deep breaths and make myself feel better. That Mm. was kind of cool. Um, other than that, just, uh, don't eat too fast. Don't make yourself, (laughs) don't hyperventilate. (laughs) Exactly. What are some of the rituals you have every single day that you must do? Let's say when you're, you know, in the zone when you're not traveling, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. When you're at home, sleep and- is huge. Yeah, like sleep is huge. You know, a lot of people mm-hmm. are like, yeah, whatever. I'll sleep when I'm dead. And no, 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 no. Sleep when you're alive, and your life will be much better. Yes, um, I think Fifty Cent said, uh, "Sleep is for those who are broke." And I think when I was in my early entrepreneurial days, I used to be like, "Yeah, sleep is for those who are broke. If you want to like make money and build your business, you got to hustle and do whatever it takes." Mm. And then I was just like, "Wow, I'm actually getting fat. I'm exhausted. I'm really angry. I'm- yeah." There is a, there's a lot of links between sleep and mental illness, yeah, bro. People who don't sleep enough can suffer, can develop anxiety disorder right. and all these things. Um, so sleep is huge for me. And I like my mornings. I like usually my mornings to be, I like the two or three hours to like 
drink my some some coffee. Philosophize. I like to do some. So I like to do some exercise in the morning. Just whatever, like some push ups, some pull ups. Just kind of some quick get get it out of the way. Um, have my breakfast, do email, and then usually after that, like around midday by one. I like to switch from from that kind of caffeinated email workout thing, and then after that, I like to switch it and go into free free association, mm. creative mode, and that's like let's go see a film or let's go for a hike, right? Yeah, you know, something that is about disconnection. So the morning is connect, focus, and then afternoon is divergent thinking. Mm. Morning is convergent <clears throat> thinking, afternoon is divergent thinking. I think that's a good balance for me. How can we tap into our minds, our intellect more, our imagination more, and also, how much of it are we currently using mm. of our minds? How do we tap into our imaginations more? Um, because it's probably similar to how do you get in the zone, being yeah. disconnecting, being in nature. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you need to practice a kind of stillness, right? Like, in order to induce contemplative introspection, mm-hmm. you need to be. You need to quiet your surroundings. You need yeah. to be in places, I think, that are serene. You know, I, I love a sort of an open, natural landscape, you know, a snowy landscape, big mountains. You know, I find that uh, the outer reflects the inner. What is without becomes within. It's the wow. power of design spaces. Like wherever you put yourself, that's who you, you become, what you behold. You are where you are. So open spaces, majestic spaces trigger introspective mm-hmm. thoughts trigger inner vastness outer vastness triggers inner vastness and i think that's so i think that's huge 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 yeah. and i think people don't often don't pay attention to the the poverty of their surroundings and i'm not talking about just material poverty but just the poverty in the choice their of what they're surrounding themselves yeah. with yeah become your environment essentially yeah yeah, yeah you do you do mm. how much of it do you think we're using our minds well, there's that there's that urban myth that we only use ten percent of our brains, yeah. and that's incorrect. Like our whole brain is active. I think the 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 better question or the better way of saying that is: Are we using our brain to our full potential? Are we using yeah. it effectively? It's not about like percentage of actual physical use of the machine or the brain, but it's more like when you see a savant on the violin, you're like, okay, well that that's like a brain optimized to do something. Mm-hmm. What is what is my version of being a savant on the violin how can sure. i tap into my genius potentially and uh, i love i love witnessing genius mm-hmm. I'm, I'm moved by genius mm-hmm. why because genius i'm not religious but i think genius is god so to speak yeah. and so when you witness genius when you witness the numinous you're witnessing that which exceeds your intellectual capacity so that is what joseph campbell describes as god right and in those moments you stop believing in death that's what's cool so yeah. when you see the world's most exquisite dancer, when you see the world's most exquisite actor, performer, writer, jazz musician, you're like, wow, that genius can never die. Right. And that's the best feeling in the world. When you believe something won't die, it's the best. <laughs> uh, you had an interesting conversation with, uh, was it Neil, right? Neil Tyson, yeah. Yeah, yeah about death and mm-hmm. about his, his perspective on it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, his perspective was, look, very beautiful. Very romantic. About the urgency. I've heard it a million times. Yes. Death is what gives meaning to life. Death is what gives urgency and value to things. We appreciate things because they're temporary. I get it. Look, I get it. And people respond to that because in the face of no other choice, that seems like the healthiest response. They're like, well, because if you really contemplate mortality, dude, you'll drive yourself into a panic attack. So Neil, Neil Tyson and Neil Tyson's answer in that video seems like the most mature and, and noble response. Yes. Okay, but uh, I don't know. I prefer the temper tantrum. I prefer saying, fuck, like I didn't sign up for this. We've committed yeah. no crime and we're afflicted with a death sentence. According to who? Mm. Who set that standard? And interesting. there was once an ocean separating us from the other world and we were like, Screw that. Yes. Yeah. Did we say, well, you know, the ocean and that limit, the fact that I can't cross it is what makes it beautiful. Mm. The fact that I can't (laughs) cross the ocean. You can only imagine what it could be like. Yeah. We create create bridges. Airplanes. To get the things we want. Yes, bro. So we just haven't created the bridge yet to have it. Of course. Dude, I think mortality. We'll look back at a time when we used to bury the dead as a kind of of uh, horror. Yeah, the wow. barbaric reality. Dude, wow. poetry and people we love, put them in the dirt? 
Yeah, it sucks. So that worms can eat them? <laughs> it sucks. I mean, I just I think it's inhuman. Yeah. But I love what can I say? I love I'm, I'm pa- a romantic who's in your, love with life. I love your passion. <laughs> I love your passion. Uh, what's the most powerful drug on earth? Uh I believe it's DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is the active chemical in the ayahuasca vine. Mm. South America is a psychedelic that they brew from this vine, and uh, it's one of the most potent psychedelics on earth, Mm. and apparently it opens your third eye. It's the same chemical that your brain secretes before you die, and uh, people people who have partaken in ayahuasca rituals describe it as really transcendental. Um, If you think of uh, marijuana as like a kind of a kite, that allows you to kind of free flow and float in your imagination a little bit, then uh, ayahuasca is kind of like a rocket ship to Venus. Wow. So quite a difference in the orbit, in the sure, nature sure, of the sure. orbit. Um, I think MDMA, according to Timothy Leary, is the only psychedelic that he would take with his wife because there's very little risk involved, assuming you have pure MDMA. Sure, sure. But there's very little risk of a bad trip. Right, you know, because right. the, 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 when, you, when you amplify feedback loops of mind and world – it could be delicate because an environment that gives you anxiety could give you horrific anxiety. Right. And your own insecurities and anxieties could manifest in the heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. But with MDMA, for some reason, it seems to only trigger positive feelings. And so it's a good entry point to altered states of consciousness. Yeah. And I'm very excited about the research that MAPS is doing, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Um with government permission to to do to use MDMA with uh, right. with uh, people who have suffered from PTSD. Interesting. For yeah. some for some reason, I thought you'd say love was the most powerful drug. Oh, oh, okay. So the question wasn't literal. <laughs> well, you can take it any way you want. Um, okay. I thought you'd go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think the most powerful feeling in the world is the experience of catharsis. So the neurochemistry of that, like, yeah, that includes love and it also includes release and it also includes longing Mm -hmm. and it includes a whole range of sensations. But I happen to think that when you actually cry because you're moved by something, there is a transcendental cleansing taking Mm -hmm. place and there is also a, a, a sort of willingness to acknowledge and and go with the the gushing flood-like experience of these feelings um and sit with them you know Mm -hmm. how often do you allow yourself to cry not enough Mm. yeah i cried this morning that's great (laughs) i was thinking about a girl will do that to you yeah well i was thinking about her and then i decided to watch (laughs) clips from the movie moulin rouge (laughs) which i love that movie i think that's a great movie i think that director is a is a marvel marvelous at creating worlds yes worldhoods like entire worldhoods Mm -hmm. and uh that film is magnificent because it's a it's a fable it's a fairy tale that uncynically celebrates love Yes. In all of its like gushing, intense circus-like one, yeah, and it's just like oh, and uh, I love it, I love it, I love it. I'm a total romantic course, for those kinds of things. I, I don't have a bone, I don't have a cynical bone when it comes to. I mean, I, that's not true. I'm like, I'm like sometimes a cynic that wishes he could be more romantic, and so he'll drug himself with romantic films sometimes <laughs> as a kind of like intellectual masturbatory, like, like just. Like a baptism of, you know, just so I can forget my cynical side. Yeah. I love it. I love it. What's your favorite romantic comedy? Romantic comedy? Uh, probably Love Actually. I was just going to say that's my favorite movie mm. when you were talking yeah, about Yeah, I that. love Love Actually. Oh, my, my gosh. My favorite scene is the very end where they play God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, uh-huh. which is considered yes. the greatest pop song of all time. And uh, and all the characters show up again yes. in this beautiful montage sequence. And then we're at the airport, the which airport. is an emotional place. And then they cut to all the shots of all the people loving each other set to God Only Knows. Beautiful. Only Richard Curtis could have done oh that. Oh, my gosh. Director. Yeah, that's my favorite. I mean, I yeah. just watched it like two weeks ago yeah. over the holidays. I'm sure yeah. you did as well, I right? Love it. Yeah, I love yeah. it. I also love When Harry Met Sally. Mm-hmm. I love the ending. New Year's Eve, very, very uh, melancholic moment. Sure, sure. You think about the past, you realize you that you, you and the future prone for emotional revelation, yeah. And uh, and he goes to the party, they're playing Old Lang Syne, which I love the New Year's song, Old mm-hmm. Lang Syne. And he tells her that he realizes that he wants to spend the rest of his life with her, yeah. and he wants to spend the rest of his life to start as soon as possible. And the music's playing, and ah, it's so beautiful. And then she cries, right? She cries, but she cries from happiness again. That's the, yes. the catharsis. So seeing Meg Ryan's eyes well up to Old Lang Syne right before they kiss. Mm. 
kills me every time. Game changer. <laughs> yeah, touches me. So it sounds like when you were growing up in high school that you had this vision for yourself to be directing and on film, be able to share your your yeah. your, your ideas. And I your... wanted to turn myself into a character in a Richard Linklater film. Right. Like I wanted to be Ethan Hawke in Before Sunrise. Sure, sure. Like that character, I felt like, how does somebody write a character that I could relate mm. to so much? Like this like romantic guy on the trains in Europe looking for a beautiful French girl to open up to. Like I that's me. Yeah. <laughs> like I love going to Amsterdam and riding my bike and looking for yes. a French girl to fall in love with. Yes. <laughs> it's just so I just like I, I, I guess yeah, to, to turn my own experiences into aesthetic works. Yeah, yeah. There is a there's a desire to kind of yeah, to take your own experiences and make art out of them. Mm -hmm. I, those are inextricably entwined for yeah. me. Yeah. Well it sounds like you've created your vision from Earlier days, yeah, yeah. And so I'm curious, what's the next in ten years? What do you? What's your vision for yourself in the next ten years? Mm. Like if you could do anything you want, I want to find. A, I want to find a muse, and I want her to willingly be part of my aesthetic universe. Like I wonder what would happen talking about love when looking at her. Wow. What's the next shot of awe about love that's not a, a regurgitation of what I felt with her? You're feeling in the moment. Yes. I want to see that. Yeah. You almost created a little mini version of it that I saw. Yeah, yeah. The video you saw. That's pretty close to it. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, what else in your life? What do you see yourself doing like career-wise besides that one? Um, I think it would be really cool to uh, have a seat at the table um, in, in discussing how to implement like radical new technologies that change humanity. Like I want to be there talking with the decision makers when we start doing crazy shit. So uh, in a salon for changing the world. Yeah. Like I have this hope that like we're going to move towards a much more integrated planet, maybe something closer to like a world government, maybe something closer mm -hmm. to like just a world beyond you know, violent conflict, a, you know, a world where the rule, the only rule is kindness, something like that. And where when instead of spending 80% of our money on military spending, we start spending 80% of our money on building interstellar starships. And right. I want to be like in the room designing interstellar starships and talking to those scientists, philosophizing with them about what it means to maybe make a warp drive. And can we do that and go to Proxima Centauri and see other stars? I want, I'm like, I relate to the Jodie Foster character in the movie contact. Like I'm, I'm like, I want to be like, I want to, feel what she feels you know when when they hear that sound from that other world you know like i just want to know that there's something more that there's something else that there's another chapter that it doesn't end okay i love yeah. it <laughs> a few questions left for you um before i ask the final questions mm -hmm. that i want to ask i want to want to talk about brain games for a second how could this is what the fifth season yeah fifth season brain games mm -hmm. Um, when is it? What time? What channel? Brain Games Season 5 premieres on National Geographic Channel globally uh, in February. Uh, I believe it's February 14th, but check okay. your local listings. But it's in 181 countries now. Yeah. Amazing. Including man. Abu Dhabi, Dubai, the Netherlands, Chile, Venezuela, Mexico, the U.S. I mean, I've been everywhere. So the, the global <laughs> success of the show is, is wonderful. So around the world, February Season 5 hour-long episodes it's going to be great awesome and yeah. where can they go online to learn about that and so yeah if you your site to keep up with everything my facebook page is where i'm seeing the most traction now yeah, you and get i a assume lot of views from there your videos there yeah more than youtube these days i mean it's the most active platform so i would encourage people to just uh Search for my verified page on Facebook, Jason Silva. If you search Jason Silva, it has a little check mark, a little blue yeah. check mark, just like yours. And then you <laughs> click follow. You keep up with everything. The actual URL, I believe, is facebook.com slash Jason L. Silva. Mm -hmm. But again, you can just search Jason Silva Facebook, the one with the check mark. Click follow. Keep up with the videos there. Yeah. I do a lot of Facebook it's live amazing. posts as well. And so. You did a... Uh a video a couple months ago that blew up with the baby. Oh, yeah, bro. And I was like, this is amazing. You had like 100 million views or something crazy. Yeah, right? insane. Like every most, most viral video I've ever done. What was that experience like with this? And, and just to recap what happened, mm -hmm. walk us through what it sure. was. So I was at my friend's house in New York, and we were <laughs> hanging out. We were very much in a flow state. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and and what happened is him and I were just like whoosh, out of our heads. And then his wife brought his little daughter out to the porch. And he was like, oh, Jason, you should hold her. And I was like, oh, God, really? I was like, <laughs> I was like holding this baby. And I was just like tripping 
balls looking into her eyes. You know, she was so interesting and her eye contact was piercing. So I guess when I started to hold her, all I was doing was responding to what I was getting from her. Thing is, my response was verbal. So what I was feeling, I was narrating. And then my friend with his iPhone just filmed 51 seconds of it and she kept eye contact the entire time. It was amazing. The entire time. Yeah, it was magic. And the next day, I I sent it to that to a friend. He was like, dude, post that now. It was huge. I was like, really? You don't think it's weird? And it's like, post it now. Posted it on Facebook, direct video upload, and it went viral immediately. I think over 44 million views, picked up on Time Magazine, Huffington Post, ABC News, blogs in Europe, like insane. Then I shared a 30-second version of it on Twitter, and it went viral on Twitter, 22,000 retweets. Like, is it something, it just, it's like viral gold. It's and when you I, don't plan something. Yeah. Right? Magic, bro. The craziest surrealistic experience was I was in in Israel, in Jerusalem, shooting for brain games. And it was the last day I went to the Dead Sea with a friend of mine. We went swimming in the Dead Sea. And then I'm like lying down on the beach chair in this like random hotel in the Dead Sea, like relaxing. (laughs) And then behind me, two chairs behind me, I hear my own voice. And I'm like, oh, my God, that sounds like the baby video. Shut up. And I turn around and I go up to this dude. And the guy was on his Facebook browsing BuzzFeed. Playing the video that had just been featured in Israel, okay? You didn't know. And two didn't know rows behind me. So that's when I was like, oh, my God. Like, I broke the internet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly. That's amazing. That was crazy. Um, awesome. So make sure to check out Brain Games, um, all the information. We'll have it all linked up in the show notes as well. And I'll tell you guys what that link will be here in a second. Um, also, what's the biggest thing you've learned about the mind over the last five years of, or five seasons of doing Brain yeah, we, Games? Like, we create the world, bro. Our, our, our mind is an apparatus. Our brain is an apparatus that only can take in limited information about its environment. Um, that's just, I mean, it's, it's incredibly sophisticated, but it actually only processes a limited amount of information. Mm-hmm. And the rest is uh, inference. It fills yeah. in the blanks. It right. completes the pattern. It's like a sophisticated algorithm that just fills in the blanks. It has enough information that it needs to make a model of the environment. Mm. So you shouldn't think of what you see in the world as a window into the world. Your eyes are not a window that you see what actually is there. You should imagine what you're seeing as a projection on an image on a screen in your mind's eye. And what's coming in is like electronic signals that go to like the equivalent of a cable box. Mm. The cable box like descrambles it and like processes the image and then sends a rendering of that information that your TV screen in your mind turns mm. into an image sure. and a lot of that comes from the processing of the information and filling in the blanks to make it legible right. so what that means is you bring cognitive biases you bring stereotypes you bring your own hopes and dreams and it colors that signal coming in sure, you sure. don't see the world as it is you see the world as you are and I so it, what does it tell us? It tells us that our creative and linguistic choices matter, that perception, that reality is coupled to perception, and that perception can be modulated, knobs and levers approach. So that means if, if we know that we don't get to have any empirical reality, if we know that our brain is creating, actively creating our world, and that a lot of that, so that reality is essentially a co-production between subject and object, then what can I bring to the table with purpose and mindfulness and intention instead of letting my brain just create the world haphazardly based on prior experiences that happened to me i like to have an active role in the process of creating my world yeah we create our world so why not have an active role in creating our world being the author of it right yes yeah i love that okay a few final questions all right um first one what are you most grateful for in your life recently um i'm grateful for health Mm -hmm. i'm grateful for cognition and I'm grateful for all the people that I love that are in my life and wonderfully dependable that love me back. Mm. And all the creative opportunities that have come my way. Sure. And this interview. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you for giving me a forum to open up so much. Of course, man. Yeah. This is going to be great. Um, this is a question I started asking people about six months ago at the end of every episode. It's your last day. Let's call it a few hundred years from now because we've learned how to extend time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And... All of your videos and works of art somehow have been erased mm-hmm. from time. Shots of all, no longer. Oh, no. The baby video, gone. Oh, damn. It's damn. only, uh, it's, it's erased. And you're on your, your last few breaths, and mm-hmm. all your family, the most important people are there. And they say, dad, brother, lover, uh, there's a piece of paper we have, and you got a pen, mm-hmm. and you can ink your final three truths. 
the three things that you know to be mm. true about everything mm. you've learned from mm. your experience in life. Mm. You get three things to write down mm. that we mm-hmm. will remember you by, and these will be the lessons that mm-hmm. we take on mm-hmm. for the rest of mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. What would you write down as three truths? Choose love, choose compassion, and choose awe. Perfect. I love it. Before I ask the final question, uh, I want to acknowledge you, Jason, for, mm. for coming on and being so open and vulnerable and sharing and expressing. And, Thanks, uh, man. Opening up your mind because it's such a powerful gift, and I believe that uh, you have this incredible talent and gift and information Thanks, and skill to share with the world. And so many people out there have their own unique gifts but are too afraid to share it. Mm-hmm. And so I want to acknowledge you for constantly committing yourself to extending your own boundaries mm-hmm. and expressing what those thoughts mm-hmm. and feelings are mm-hmm. so the rest of us can be inspired to extend our own boundaries. Thank you. So I value you and I value your I value you, bro. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. I, I felt uh, an immediate kinship and connection with you when we mm. met on the cruise. And our friend Aubrey Marcus, yes. I'm actually might be seeing him tomorrow, actually. Yeah, I texted him last night and said, hey, okay. he's in town. Make sure you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, man, right away I was like, takes one to know one. Dude. Yeah, I appreciate so, it. I appreciate thank it. you. Uh, and make sure everyone go follow Jason uh, on Facebook and your your website is yeah. this is jasonsilva.com. Yes. Instagram, Twitter, all, yeah. are you on the In- Snapchat? I don't do Snapchat yet because everything is fleeting. Everything gets erased. It's <laughs> contrary true. to my philosophy. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to Snapchat your answer okay, then. Okay, great. And so people can can uh, can hear it on Snapchat. Great. Um so, but the final question, and we're going to extend this too. We're sure. going to do another video after this. So right. make sure you guys will have this linked up in the show notes afterwards. Awesome. Uh, we're going to create our own little shots of awe yes. in a little bit. But my final question is, what's your definition of greatness? What's my definition of greatness? Wow. Greatness is when we overcome our own boundaries, when we surprise ourselves, when we are moved to the point of tears, when Mm. we extend our hands towards one another, when we are able to experience intersubjective mutuality. I get to know the insides of your mind, you get to know the insides of my mind, and we become one. That's greatness. I love it. I love it. Jason Silva, thanks for coming on, my man. Appreciate you. Thank you, you bro. Thank you for having me, bro. What an honor. Thank you, guys. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you. Awesome. So awesome. And there you have it, greats. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing Jason. Again, make sure to head back to lewishouse.com slash 281 to check out the entire show notes the full video interview in our studio in LA and also our own little shots of all with Jason that we shot at my place as well. Go to lewishouse.com slash Organifi and get 20% off your first order. And the first 500 people that use that code will also get a free copy of my book as well. Never pay full retail again for organic and natural products. To get started, make sure to go to thrivemarket.com slash Lewis. And if this is your first time here, make sure to subscribe over on Stitcher and SoundCloud. And of course, over on iTunes at itunes.com slash School of Greatness or right on your app on the podcast app on your phone. Again, please share this out all over on Twitter, Facebook, social media everywhere, lewishouse.com slash 281. Get the message out about what Jason is up to. Subscribe to him on YouTube and also check out Brain Games on the National Geographic channel. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Thank you so much for being a part of this movement of greatness. You know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.